Come and find your hope now in Jesus. He is all he said he would be. If ever there was a Sunday just to keep on resolutely doing what we always do, it would be this Sunday, wouldn't it? So let's turn our hearts to Scripture now and open up John's Gospel once again, just where we left off last week. John chapter 6 and page 891 in the Church Bibles. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those he'd eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving that they're about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they'd rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, I am. Do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. As always, it took twice as long to pack the car as you'd planned for. And so you left late, and then for the first 30 miles or so, you argue about who was supposed to turn off the heating. Finally, the kids are all on their screens, the dog is farting merrily in the boots, and up front, you've settled into a stony silence. But you have to break it when the crucial moment in the journey arrives. 
that one turn that you always miss. Both of you are now primed, watching desperately for the sign because neither of you wants to face the recriminations if you miss it yet again. Junction after junction fly past and then both at once you see it just as a massive great truck pulls past you and blocks it from view. You saw the sign, you looked right at it, but once again, the crucial information passes you by, the thing it's actually pointing to. Verse two, a large crowd was following Jesus because they saw the signs he was doing. Verse 14, the people saw the sign that he had done. But read on in your Bible to verse 26, where those same crowds have chased Jesus over the Sea of Galilee in response to this miracle. And Jesus says something very strange. Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Well, hang on a minute, John. You've just told us they followed Jesus because they did see the signs. So which is it? Clearly, there is a way of seeing Jesus' miraculous signs, even taking part in them and loving every minute of it and finding it hugely significant in your own spiritual journey, and yet not really seeing at all what those signs were pointing to. And so in chapter 6, John takes us to what is perhaps the second most significant thing that Jesus did in his entire earthly life. Apart from this, there is only one other event in Jesus' ministry that every gospel writer includes, and that is his death and resurrection. So somehow this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, which is so kids' picture bible in my head at least, has a similar weight in our Bibles to that great event at the heart of history, the cross itself. Like chapter 5, in this chapter we get a sign and then a long exposition as Jesus teaches us what it means, and this time it really is long, but it is a wonderful, wonderful chapter because it matters so much to Jesus that these people got a second chance to hear from him what he was showing them. This is the longest chapter in John's gospel, one of the longest in the New Testament by word count, and yet John is asking us one simple question through it. Here is the sign. Now who do you see in Jesus Christ? The cross will show us how Jesus saves but in John's gospel, it's this miracle which will show us how well Jesus saves. John is using this fourth sign to show us that we really, really can trust him. Because Jesus is someone who provides in the most wonderful, all-sufficient way, even for the impossibly deep needs of his people. That's really the theme of Chapter 6 as a whole, how Jesus provides for his people the wonderful benefits of being united by faith to him. Now, sign number four is a twofer, a two-for-one deal. We get the feeding of the 5,000, and then 
Jesus walking on water is thrown in for free because John uses the second part of this story to help us see what so many people there that day managed to miss. So today we'll stick to this two-part sign itself, verses 1 to 21, and then when we come back, we'll spend a few weeks unpacking the rest of the chapter, all its wonderful richness. But for now, let's focus on John's big question to us. Here is the sign. Who should we see? In the first part, the feeding miracle, John will begin to show us who they experienced that day, a wonderfully sufficient savior. But then he'll let us in on what they actually saw in him before at the end, Jesus reveals the full truth in its awesome majesty with the second part of the sign, who they experienced, who they saw, and who Jesus actually revealed. First then, let's look at verses 1 to 13 and who they experienced, because John is telling us here about a day when 5,000 men, presumably along with their women and children, sat down to eat with a deliverer who saves to the uttermost. So this is not a story about a wonderfully inventive chef who manages to stretch out the food and save the dinner party when too many people show up. This is not a story about a kindly boy who shared his lunch or even a delivery driver who put in a heroic shift. This is about a totally different kind of delivery. And we know that because John is very carefully setting the scene for us to help us read this story right. The first obvious clue is that once again, this sign happens, verse 4, just as Passover time is coming round, the time when all Israel is getting ready to reenact the Exodus story, that great Old Testament moment of deliverance. Now, maybe that timing is just a coincidence, but the more close you look, the less likely that seems. I wonder how many other allusions to the Exodus story you clocked as we read through this. Notice that Jesus begins this feeding miracle up a mountain, verse 3, and he ends, verse 15, by returning to his mountain, away from the people, just as God dwelt away from the people on Mount Sinai during the Exodus. It's a story about a miraculous feeding, heavenly bread that God uses to sustain his people in the wilderness. Have we heard that story before? And then you zoom in on the details, even the seemingly insignificant ones, and yet they all seem to tell the same story. Verse 13, 12 baskets of leftovers, enough for all Israel, every tribe. Verse 15, the people's verdict, that Jesus must be some kind of new Moses, the prophet who God promised Moses he would raise up when he was gone. Then there's the miraculous crossing through the water that follows, even the strong wind that blows on the water, verse 18. Verse 21, arriving in the land they were traveling to. Later on, verse 32, Jesus will compare what happened here to what God did through Moses. And then most devastating of all, look at the fateful Exodus word that comes in verse 41, 
Do you see it? We get it again in verse 43. The people are fed with bread from heaven, and what do they do? They find something to grumble about, just like the Exodus generation. And what follows is a mass desertion of their deliverer. Now, we'll have time to think about some of those details in the coming weeks, but do you see the big picture they're painting? When I sit down and I read out the words, a mouse took a stroll through the deep, dark woods, you all know what kind of story I'm telling, don't you? It's a nursery story. When John sits down and he says to us, there once was a Lord who fed his people on supernatural breads, then you know what kind of story he's telling, a rescue story. And Jesus uses this rescue story to teach the very same lesson that God taught his Exodus people when he fed them with manna from heaven. You can trust me to provide for you. Notice how he starts in verse 5. Jesus does just what he told his disciples to do a few chapters back in Samaria. He lifts up his eyes and sees fields full of the lost. It's as if already John is saying, look at his shepherd's heart. When Jesus lifts up his eyes, he doesn't just see people. He notices their need. I have to be told normally I can be in a room full of chaos and wet babies and choke hazards and whatever else, quite happily minding my own business. And Jen or Eleanor will have to say, would you mind just changing that nappy? You know, that baby who's been crying for the last 10 minutes while I'm juggling 10 other kids over here. I have to be told. Jesus is a far better shepherd than I am. And so he knows already what needs to be done. But first we get this strange moment where he tests his disciples. And as incidental as that seems, I think it actually unlocks the whole application for us. What did God do in the wilderness when he gave them manna from heaven? Well, according to Exodus 16, he tested them. It's another parallel, yet another. That manna was a wonderful gift from God, but the real gift wasn't the food. The real gift is what it did to their hearts to live day by day by day, trusting that God would give them exactly what they needed. The manna was God's way of saying to his people, do you believe that I am sufficient to provide for you? And that is exactly what Jesus asks Philip in verse 5, along with everyone who experienced him that day. Do you believe I am a sufficient savior to meet your needs? Philip was the local boy from Bethsaida, just around the corner. So he's the obvious one to ask and bless him. He understands Jesus in the way that everyone in this book so far has understood Jesus. When he talked about the temple, when he talked about the new birth, when he talked about living water, he understands Jesus simply at a human material level. And so his mind goes racing around all of the local Gregs and Pretts and begins to do the sums. And his answer is essentially, Jesus, we just don't have the means at our disposal to care for these people. Even if we were to clear out every shelf and spend more than half a year's wages, 200 denarii, it wouldn't be enough 
for a mouthful each. And then in verse 8, Andrew chips in, and he's just the same, isn't he? In that he only sees meager natural means, nothing more. There's a boy over here who will let us nick his lunch, five cheap barley loaves and a couple of fish. But to feed this lot with that, I mean, we'd be asking for a miracle. I wonder how often we think like these two, even after all these years of following Jesus and seeing who he is, there's no point asking for a miracle. It's all well and good asking for my son's heart to change or asking for a church building in the middle of a recession. Nice things to dream about. But who really thinks Jesus could come through on those? Well, Jesus does sometimes test his people like this with needs that seem too big to ask for. And isn't that a great kindness of his that he does? He doesn't just let these disciples stagnate in their faith. And then notice his kindness to this little boy in taking his snack. Here is the one who spoke the worlds into being out of nothing. He doesn't need this little boy's lunch. But can't you just see it? I can well picture my little boy offering up his half-eaten pack of cheesy Watsits and his big sister's there dying with embarrassment. (laughs) And then Jesus absolutely making his day by actually taking them and using them. Because Jesus does that all the time, doesn't he? He takes our absolutely nothings, our timid words about him, our clumsy efforts, our pennies, our reluctant rotor sign-ups. And Jesus does amazing things with them that he could have easily done without them. But in his gracious power, he uses them. And so he sits the people down on the green grass like the shepherd of Psalm 23. And it is very clear how the roles here are working, isn't it? Jesus is the host, the provider, the head of the table. And so Jesus is the one who gives thanks, and then he hands out the food. Now, I've had to guess at the weight of a barley loaf and a dried sardine, but according to my slightly dodgy maths, this would be like passing around one of our little squares of communion bread for every six people in the room. Oh, and John is only counting the men. So once they've taken that little square of communion bread, they would then have to share their sticks of a square with their family. Should we give that a go next time? See how much we have left? Slightly trickier, I think, when Graham chops up the bread. I reckon he's a little more stingy than Peter's with it. But look what John stresses in the next few verses. Verse 11, they took as much as they wanted. Verse 12, they'd eaten their fill. And then the moment of comedy girls, go on, guys, gather up the leftovers so that nothing may be lost. Leftovers. We normally have more food on a Sunday lunch than anyone can safely eat, and yet we hardly ever have leftovers. Jesus has provided enough for every tribe to fill their boots. Twelve baskets come back. What Jesus gives is extravagantly sufficient. And I wonder if we live in such an age of decadent plenty that we miss what a wonderful truth that is. My first visit to India was 
as an 11-year-old boy, it was a very different country then. And almost as soon as I left the airport in what used to be Madras, I was thrown into terrifying, chaotic insufficiency. I had never seen anything like it. It was one of those moments of growing up that gets seared into your memory. Hundreds of children made to beg from the tourists, hair turned red from malnourishment, belly swollen, spindly legs, holding onto your shirt with one hand and pouring at their open mouths with the other, pleading for food everywhere you look. It's a terrifying thing to be faced with need you can do nothing about. Our prime minister has just taken over a nation with a list of problems that there are literally no good solutions to. None. A grieving, worried nation and desperate need coming at us on the horizon. And she will know by now that she cannot meet it. How terrible that must feel. Well, John's gospel to this point has been painting a picture of desperate need, hasn't it? They may not know it, but these are starving people, spiritually lost and unable to feed themselves. And yet Jesus provides for 5,000 families, and once dinner's been served, there's not a single complaint. Notice that little phrase when Jesus collects up the leftovers? That nothing may be lost. What a strange thing to say. And yet he'll say it again in verse 39, talking about people. The people these 12 baskets seem to represent. I will lose nothing of all the Father has given me. Not one plate will be missed. Not one child neglected or forgotten or overlooked. I will lose nothing. And so whatever we're meant to see in him in this sign, let's not miss the big obvious lesson, even in the face of desperate needs, when we can see no obvious means, Jesus is an extravagant provider, an Exodus-style deliverer who doesn't just save. He saves to the uttermost. Of all the millions of words written about the queen already in the last few days. That is the one essential fact that defined her, isn't it? From all we could tell, she knew a sufficient savior who she trusted to provide something that all the money and glory and honor of this world couldn't buy for her. Maybe you're here this morning thinking, Jesus is great for these people. They have their lives together, their families all sorted, their choices made but I'm not sure it's worth it for me. I want things that he won't let me have. I need things he's not able to give. I've done things he would never forgive. My sin goes too deep. Well, before it's saying anything else, this sign says, friend, Jesus is the only one who can provide for you deeply and truly. And there is no one he's not able to forgive and to rescue. In fact, he has paid it all already. 
His gospel is more sufficient than we would ever believe. Well, that is who the sign is showing them. That was the Jesus that 5,000 men experienced firsthand that day. But who did they see? And at first look, verses 14 and 15 are a little ambiguous, aren't they? Because the crowd aren't stupid. They know their Bibles well. They know the basic laws of nature. They know this is not normal. And so they recognize that something very significant has just happened. They picked up far faster than we would have done on all the Exodus signals. And verse 14, they think they know who they see when they look at Jesus. And it's remarkably good, isn't it? They see an Exodus-style deliverer, a Moses 2.0, the prophet who is to come. And so the question is, have they got it right? Quite a few of the commentaries I've been working with this week would say, basically, yes, they have. Because if Jesus has been reenacting the Passover here, what role would he be playing if not Moses? Isn't it Moses who led the people out, who found them food, who was constantly running up and down the mountain? Wasn't that Moses? He was a type, a foreshadowing of Jesus. He was the model for every prophet and priest and king who would come in his footsteps. And yet, and yet, they recognized their king and tried to put him on his rightful throne And for whatever reason, Jesus will not let them. He withdraws back up the mountain, shrouded from sight. And then we start to question things, don't we? Wasn't that introduction John gave us at the top of the chapter rather ominous? Why are these people here? Verse 2, because they had seen the signs. And Jesus has been very ambivalent so far in this book about people who express enthusiasm in him because they see what he can do for them. So far, faith based on seeing his miraculous signs has turned out to be pretty superficial, hasn't it? And what does it say, verse 15, when you try and take someone by force and make him your king? Can it really be a king you want when you are the one pulling the strings? Well, it's Jesus himself that unravels the mystery for us later on. Let's take a sneaky glance at his assessment in verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, part of a king's job in the Bible is to protect and provide and to care for his people. And what they see in these signs is a king who can do that in spades. That's no little thing. This was not an age when your next meal, your children's next meal, was guaranteed. If you saw a man who could do for you what Jesus can do, wouldn't you want him running things? Wouldn't you want someone with this kind of power to take charge of the government and kick out the Romans and give you some stability at last? Those aren't wrong things to look for. The problem is that was all they saw. A king who rules for their stomachs. 
In other words, they are looking at him in just the same way that Philip was when he failed the test. They want a human king who they can put on their human throne to meet their human needs. And can't we sometimes be just the same? Who gets to set the agenda for what Jesus' kingship looks like? So much of today's church wants to write his manifesto for him. He has to care about the things that we care about, climate change, the cost of living, our heating bills. Maybe there are places in our lives where we want to force him to rule, to twist his arm into meeting our needs. I want a king who can give me the partner I long for, or the job I deserve, or the security I crave. But I resist his kingship over my money and my chastity and my temper and my tongue and my family life. We want a king who will meet our needs on our terms. Jesus will not allow it. He's not necessarily the king we want him to be. But he is the king we need him to be. So this wasn't a metaphor about how Jesus fills our stomachs. That was literally what he did. This was a sign about an eternal reality that he provides for the needs of our souls. He provides a rescue that would cost him infinitely more than a half a year's wages. And he will feed us with something far more precious than a loaf of bread. Which is why, ultimately, all those twee applications of this miracle about sharing your lunch and feeding the hungry fall so far short of what it's saying. In Jesus' kingdom, all of those things will be taken care of. He'll provide. But it really is a kingdom, not a democracy. And his agenda is far, far bigger than any of those things. And it's the last little section, verses 16 to 21, which makes that clear. Who they see is a human king who rules for their stomachs. But Jesus, in his grace, reveals someone far, far more. A God who rides on the storm. John is one of those writers who often manages to say some very profound things in some very ordinary words. And surely that is going on in verse 17. These disciples get into the boat to start out on their journey, and yet they've got a long way to go. And right now, verse 17, they are shrouded in darkness, and Jesus has not yet come to them. That is giving us far more than a shipping forecast, isn't it? It's telling us where they are spiritually. The storm hits and they row and they row, three or four miles they row. So they are in the middle of the lake, exhausted and without Jesus. And that's when they see him walking over the sea as if it were dry land. And verse 19, that sight is terrifying. O tell of his might. O sing of his grace, whose robe is the light, whose canopy space, his chariots of wrath, the deep thunderclouds form, and dark is his path on the wings of the storm. 
Who are we seeing here? In case we're in any doubts what kind of glory he's manifesting, Jesus speaks to them in the next verse, and he makes it absolutely plain. The it is I bit on its own, that might be a bit ambiguous, but put it together with the do not be afraid, and there's no doubt at all. The words that the covenant God speaks again and again and again to his Old Testament people, above all, when he brought them through the waters to conquer the promised land. I am Yahweh. Do not fear. If the God of Exodus had a catchphrase, that would be it. Maybe the best commentary on these verses comes in the Old Testament, Isaiah 43, if you want to look at it. It's page 603 in your church Bibles. Isaiah chapter 43. And God is promising his people here a new exodus, an ultimate, eternal deliverance. And just listen to how he speaks. Verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you through rivers. They shall not overwhelm you. Verse 3, for I am Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Verse 5, fear not, for I am with you. Who am I? Verse 16, I am Yahweh, who makes a way through the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Well, back to John's gospel. And they were absolutely right to see this as an Exodus story. But it is very clear now that they were absolutely wrong to see Jesus as a mere human Moses 2.0. It wasn't Moses who belonged at the top of Mount Sinai. It wasn't Moses who provided bread from heaven. Jesus will spell that out explicitly for them in verse 32. That bread came from God, who was with his people, leading them out from slavery. It's what his very name, I am, implies. I am with you. I'm the covenant God. It was a promise, that name, ultimately, that this God of the Exodus would come in the flesh and be with them forever. And so the sign here isn't complete until the very last verse. Look how the story progresses. They start out in the boat on their own, shrouded in darkness and getting nowhere. And then Jesus makes himself known, not on their terms, but on his, his own terms. They see him riding on the sea, a show of terrifying divine glory. And only then, when they learn to be utterly terrified of him, can he come to them clothed in the gospel with those wonderful words. I am the covenant God of grace. Do not be afraid. I'm with you to bless you. And with those gospel words, verse 21, at last their hearts are made willing to have him on his terms. And the instant God is with his people in the boat, immediately they reach the land that they were heading for. There's the miracle. Jesus delivers them through the sea 
and into his rest. Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. It turns out that the thing they really need to get there is Jesus himself. They will find out soon that this is not ultimately a gospel about a savior who gives enough bread. It's a gospel about a savior who is himself enough bread, the only bread. He is the covenant God who can meet the deepest needs of his ransomed people. And so both parts of this sign are showing us the same thing, aren't they? Without Jesus, they are starving and storm-tossed and utterly lost. But we don't need to be without him. The God who our hearts were made for, who alone can meet our deepest needs, he has come down to be with us and deliver us and provide for us. So do we look at the sign and know without a shadow of doubt that it is him we need? Let's bow our heads. Gracious God, we see you in this passage, in your terrifying creative power, and yet also in your wondrous, compassionate love. And we know that we need a savior like that because our sin goes too deep and our need is too great for anyone else to deal with it. And so we repent of every way that we've tried to have your gifts on our own terms, like some genie in a lamp. And we thank you that you who knows far better than us what we truly need have promised to be with us on your terms. So help us, we pray, from this day until our very last day to trust the Lord Jesus alone to provide for our souls. For we ask it all in his strong and loving name. Amen.